0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR. This year marks 40 years of Radical Radio at 3CR, and we're asking you to keep us on air for another 40 years by donating your money to 3CR's Radical Radiothon, June 6 to 19. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or visit us online at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy your podcast. Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced on Wiradjuri country at 3CR's studios in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands across this continent on the community radio network. I'm Tisha Naherne.
1: These are minerals that a company didn't make being extracted on land that the company doesn't own, often without the consent of the traditional owners of that country. And the company digs them, rips them, ships them, and leaves. And we need to change that model. We need to challenge that model, and we need to change that model because our commonwealth in the mineral resource endowment in this country sometimes shouldn't be accessed, but when it is accessed, it should be commonwealth and it shouldn't be private wealth and public cost. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a year since Energy Resources of Australia. The operator of the Ranger uranium mine in Kakadu announced they're abandoning their proposed expansion, dubbed Ranger Three Deeps. Focus is increasingly moving to rehabilitation, but what that looks like is still unknown. Later in the program, we'll get an update from Dave Sweeney, the Australian Conservation Foundation's nuclear-free campaigner, about the fight ahead to make sure Ranger is properly cleaned up. But first on the program, the campaign against the Geelong Star Super Trawler. Here's Rebecca Hubbard from the Stop the Trawler Alliance.
2: The Geelong Star is a large foreign factory freezer trawler that works in the small pelagic fishery in Australia. It uh, is jointly owned by a Dutch company and an Australian company called Seafish. And the Dutch company actually has a Massive fleet of these super trawlers, which are basically big factory ships uh, that can stay at sea for many, many weeks. And what that means is that they kind of really industrial scale fishing. And the Geelong Star was introduced into Australia last year around Easter, and uh, by by this joint this joint operation to fish in Australia's small pelagic fishery, which um, is really mackerel and red bait, which are kind of the bait fish. And um, one step up from from the foundations of the food chain, really, they're really important food for bigger predators like seals and tuna, marlin, dolphins, uh, and seabirds. So they're a real important uh, prey or bait fish for many other species in the oceans, and uh, the the Geelong Star really is here to target that fishery specifically, and um, it's a a high-volume, low-value fishery, so they take thousands and thousands of tonnes, and they're valued at about a dollar a kilo. The difference between super trawlers, like these big factory trawlers, like the Geelong Star, and a normal what we would class as a kind of your average trawler that we've seen in Australia for a a very long time is that they have a factory and a freezer on board. So some, some trawlers have freezers, but very few of we haven't really had any other big factory trawlers in this fishery. And what that factory means is that it gives it this huge capacity to process large numbers of fish and to stay at sea for many weeks. So... Really, in this case, it's the size and capacity of that vessel to be able to take large amounts of fish in short periods of time or, indeed, stay at lo- sea for a longer periods of time. And it just means it can have a big impact in relatively restricted areas. It doesn't have to come back to shore to offload. So it can stay in one area and just keep fishing um, quite intensively. So that is why... We are so very concerned about this new shift to industrial factory trawlers. Um, we haven't had these factory trawlers in uh, near Australian uh, waters in the small pelagic fishery before, or at least not since I think they tried it once back in the 80s and that and that was it. It's um, an enormous kind of factory on the water and... That ability in, to stay at sea also means that, as you said, it can also, it also has a much bigger impact and threat to the protected species that uh, feed on, on these bait fish. So, seals and dolphins and seabirds um, and sharks, they, there's an increased chance of, of catching those, as we've seen with the Geelong Star catching a whale shark even uh, in its nets a few months back.
0: And the whale shark that was caught by the Jong Star uh, earlier this year was only the latest in a series of incidents of species being caught, uh, such as seals and dolphins, which has led to the Geelong Star being banned for short periods of time, but yet it's still fishing. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the biggest concerns that we had before the Geelong Star came to Australia was that there is no proven uh, way to stop these protected species getting um, caught and often killed by these massive trawlers. So we knew that it was going to pose a much bigger threat than the existing trawlers and we didn't have a surefire way of stopping that from happening. And, of course, when it, the Geelong Star came, it um, did kill a, about nine dolphins very quickly um, and it was banned for six months from the south coast of New South Wales. Um, It was also banned from night fishing because uh, at night you can't see dolphins specifically um, feeding because dolphins are quite vulnerable to these uh, getting caught in these nets. And if you can't see them, you can't avoid them. So basically they stopped night fishing uh, but unfortunately, um, we also obviously saw the death of uh, many seals as well and also a number of albatross. Uh, so it's been stopped for short periods. But unfortunately, the industry or the, this uh, one company, Seafish, basically cries poor and says it can't catch enough fish if it doesn't fish at night. And so that night fishing ban was lifted Um and, of course, as well, we've seen them continue to fish, particularly on the south coast of New South Wales over the last few months, and continue to kill other protected species, including um, albatross and catching the whale shark, which we still don't know if it's actually if it's survived or not.
0: And this vessel, along with, with other fisheries vessels, is meant to be regulated by the Australian Fisheries Management Authority, Do you have any confidence in the authority to properly uh, regulate this trawler?
2: Look, we have huge concerns with the Australian Fisheries Management Authority or the AFMA in regulating this trawler. Um, Effectively, one of our biggest concerns is that there's a real lack of transparency about the trawler's operations, where it's going and what it's catching. There is very limited uh, access to information around uh, interactions and deaths of protected species. And we've seen asthma go to extraordinary lengths to allow this vessel to fish for what is a very um, marginally profitable commercial fishery, uh, even though there has been an enormous amount of public backlash and concern from other key stakeholders in the fishery. So, you know, the, the, the public is actually the owner of our fisheries. We, the Australian people, own that natural resource and ASMA is responsible for effectively managing and, and leasing that resource out uh, in a sustainable manner to to the industry and regulating that. That that use and management, and what we're very concerned about is that many other stakeholders in the community, massive opposition across the uh, Australian uh, public, including uh, from conservation organisations, uh, tourism businesses, and recreational fishers, um, that we've got big concerns around the vulnerability of the fishery to being overfished, and big concerns around impacts on other economies and other social values from this, these factory trawlers and those concerns have been pretty much ignored. Uh, and so we're, we we have declining faith in AFMA and that's very concerning because we feel like uh, the way that AFMA is managing this fishery and approving the ongoing operation of super trawlers in the fishery is really actually also starting to damage Australia's uh, reputation on improving sustainable management of our fisheries.
0: We're in the midst of a federal election campaign and that opens up a unique opportunity for campaigns such as the Stop the Trawler Alliance to uh, bring some pressure to bear on on politicians. Is that something that you're taking advantage of in this election campaign?
2: Well, look, we're absolutely taking advantage of the opportunity that elections elections pose to get the major parties to really um, consider their policy on this issue more uh, deeply both the we've had an interesting situation with the super uh issue in that you have people from across the the voting um, landscape the majority opposed to super trawlers. so um, what we've got here is a significant number of constituents in communities where both Labor and Liberal are trying really hard to get their votes and they don't want super trawlers and so this is a it is a great opportunity to apply extra pressure to get those policy positions toughened up um, thus far we've really seen the Greens some independents like Andrew Wilkie in Tasmania and some uh, recreational fishing parties taking a strong line that really reflects the community's concerns on this issue, but unfortunately, Labor and Liberal are both uh, really falling short in terms of addressing the big issues on super trawlers. And uh, you know, they, they're both acknowledging that this is a big issue, and they're both kind of competing for attention or support um, on it. But neither have yet gone far enough. So the Labor Party has said that they that they can't imagine supporting super trawlers coming into Australia and that they want more scientific assessments. Uh, We obviously don't think that's quite strong enough because we've already had independent scientific assessments about the impacts of factory trawlers and they have said they are large impacts, they are um, unmeasurable and in many cases unmanageable Uh, and we've also obviously seen that the that the impacts in terms of recreational fishing and, and conservation values um, are still outstanding. So so Labor's position, although they voted to keep the night fishing ban in place um, and they did put in place the original... Ban on the Margiris. Their position is is not yet uh, strong enough, and the Liberal Party, of course, is, is it, it really is ignoring recreational fishers and coastal communities, uh, particularly on the eastern seaboard, because it's basically saying oh we put in we put in place a ban on super trawlers over 130 metres long. Now that's really just like a handful of the biggest monster trawlers in the world, but you know, leaves the net wide open for Geelong Star equivalents to be um, pillaging up and down the coast.
0: Rebecca Hubbard, Marine Coordinator at Environment Tasmania and Coordinator of the Stop the Trawler Alliance. You can add your voice to the campaign by going to stopthetrawler.net. You're listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. In June 2015... Energy Resources of Australia, the operator of the Ranger uranium mine that sits on the lands of the Mirarr people in Kakadu, announced it was shelving a planned expansion. Dubbed Ranger Three Deeps, the new mine would have been a significant expansion of operations at the accident-prone site, which has seen significant breaches and leaks of radioactive contaminants over the years. The company's mining lease expires in January 2021, So, the announcement was seen by many as indicating the end of uranium mining in Kakadu. Dave Sweeney is the nuclear-free campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation, and he's been watching the developments at Ranger closely. I asked him what the current state of play is, a year on from ERA's announcement.
1: Around 12 months ago, Energy Resources of Australia, and most importantly their parent company, 68% owned by Rio Tinto, announced that uh, they did not support um, further development of the range of three deeps proposal which was a proposal to chase one lens of uranium deep underground at the existing range site. So to move from an open cut mining process which has been traditionally into an underground uh, operation for the last few years of its life. That was a process that was, as you say, strongly opposed by um, environment groups and there were deep concerns raised by traditional owners about the project as well. And uh, and to see it uh, uh, put aside was very welcome. And then a year later you get like almost like the annual check-up with these companies in the form of their annual general meeting. And there were very, very different positions that were taken by the two companies in um, in recent uh, in in their recent round of AGMs, um, Energy Resources of Australia had their annual meeting in early May in Darwin, and they were very bullish. Actually, they were talking up Ranger Three Deeps. They were talking up a lease extension to allow further work at the Ranger mine. They were talking up extended mineral processing at Ranger, and they were very much putting forward the view that Rio Tinto could change its mind in relation to um, Ranger and and were putting forward the view that Rio uh, might be more sympathetic to extended mining and milling at Ranger. So that was obviously a really significant concern to uh, environment organisations and groups that have been active and closely watching this issue, tracking and engaging in this issue for a very long time. So we were at that AGM, and the next day we were at the Rio AGM. So the ERA one was in Darwin. The Rio Tinto one was a day later in Brisbane. And Rio Tinto were very different. Whereas Energy Resources of Australia were bullish and banging the drum, Rio Tinto were quite matter-of-fact. They very clearly understand the time frames around operations at Ranger. They very clearly understand and stated uh, an understanding of the expectations from traditional owners and the wider community about the need for cleanup. In their statements, they said they couldn't have been clearer about their view of the future of Ranger, and they stated that they had offered Energy Resources of Australia a line of credit of $100 million to underwrite uh, if there's any... Increased rehabilitation and cleanup costs, and that line of credit was conditional on ERA spending it only for cleanup and rehabilitation, not one dollar for more mining. The other thing that Rio Tinto said is that th- they had done their own assessment of the R3D, the underground proposal, and they found it to be both technically and economically flawed. So they were very matter of fact. They were like, This is a project that. Uh, has run its course and now the challenge for us as a company is to ensure that its closure, its clean up, the exit is well managed and doesn't become a reputational damage to energy resources of Australia. So that gap between the junior partner that operates the mine and the parent company that owns it um, was a very significant gap. and. Um, it's, it's um, you know, somewhat disconcerting, but the main thing is with most things in the mining industry, the resource industry or anywhere where big dollars are involved, you, you follow what the big dollars are saying. And in this case, the big dollar sits firmly with Rio Tinto and Rio Tinto are very aware that they'll be long judged and closely watched in relation to how they manage the clean-up, the exit, the transition from the very controversial and contested ranger operation.
0: Now, uh, rehabilitation has been a significant concern since the mine first opened, and this was a concern when we were discussing this a year ago. Now, you've said that uh, Rio has has said that they are going to back up ERA uh, in terms of capital needed for rehabilitation this is sounding a lot more positive. Are you still concerned though about the prospects of rehabilitation and and also what what are the prospects um, you know practically in terms of rehabilitating uh open cut uranium mine in in a world heritage site such as kakadu nonetheless
1: yeah absolutely look this is this is the area that we're moving to now, which is the new area of of challenge in this whole operation like. This talk of from Energy Resources of Australia of, or oh, maybe we could go deeper, or maybe we could extend, or maybe we could uh, push more uh, pre uh, already mined material through the mill. That's all uh, really um, banging on the drum and speculative. What is real and where the challenge is and where the thinking needs to be, the resources and the capacity directed to, is ensuring that there is the best possible cleanup the best possible rehabilitation work, that there is inclusive and highest-practice transition planning towards developing a post-mining economy for the Kakadu region and for making sure that, at this place, the mining industry doesn't do what it has done for so long and continues to do, which is rip and run. And you're exactly right. This is no ordinary mining project. It's a uranium project. And it's no ordinary place. It's inside the physical boundaries of Australia's largest national park, which is dual world heritage listed for both its natural and cultural values. The site has to be, under Australian law, has to be rehabilitated to a standard whereby it could be included in the world heritage listed Kakadu. So that's a very high bar. And this is a real concern and a real challenge. We're a little bit pleased a little bit more relieved that Rio Tinto has added the option of another $100 million to ERA's toolkit to clean up, because what we do know about uranium mining and the rehabilitation is that it's complex, that it's costly, and that it is, as the process unfolds, more and more unknowns become known, and they're invariably add to the complexity and the difficulty of clean-up. We're talking about long, large volumes of long-lived radioactive material which used to be geologically cocooned and reasonably inert and safe and now over 30 years of operation, it's been physically broken up, it's been pulverised, brought to the surface, chemically treated and it's now far more bioavailable. It can move in wind and water. It lasts for many, many thousands of years. It contains, on average... of the radioactivity of the original ore that attracted the miners years ago. And it is a significant and continuing environmental management problem. So to try and quarantine that stuff, that ranger, it has to be quarantined to be isolated from the wider environment under law for a period of not less than 10,000 years. 10,000 years. And this is a monsoonal tropical area where patterns of monsoon activity and rain activity and storm activity are increasing with the uncertainty and the and the changes brought about by climate change. And there are major, major engineering, there are major economic, there are major environmental and social uh, complexities and challenges with this whole work. So it is a real, really hard job. And we've seen just recently that uh, a mine that is a little bit comparable in the fact that it's a uranium mine open-cut in the same region, the Rum Jungle mine near Batchelor, um, that continues to be a running saw into that environment. It continues to lose heavy metal, radioactive and other contaminants into the nearby Finness River and the surrounding region. And recently traditional owners... Um, raised very serious concerns, and the federal government has given, I think, around in the order of $14 million for a further scoping study to see what might be possible to be done. So none of this is cheap, none of this is clean, none of this is straightforward. So what we're saying really clearly and what we want to bring home very, very clearly is that Rio Tinto has existed for a 100-plus years, thereabouts, as a mining company. It's not just a tin pot operation with a post office box. It is a big resource company, and we are saying to them, you have benefited from this mine. Now you have to pay. You can't cut and run. You can't mine and disappear. You need, now will be judged, measured assessed and weighed according to how well you clean up this place. I think, I hope, that message has got through to Rio. I think that they understand that their reputation and things that flow from that, including subsequent land access, their, their sense of ability to negotiate land access and, and resource access agreements and the like, is flapping in the breeze and will be measured and judged according to what they do in Kakadu. So we want to get the talk away from speculative nonsense about a second wave of operations at Ranger and get it into where it really needs to be, focused, sharp, hard, on meeting, in the best possible way, some of the worst possible threats and addressing, in the most effective ways, some of these really challenging and long-lasting dangers, chemical dangers, radiological dangers, other threats, that could significantly, now and into the future, impact on the quality of life and the quality of the environment in this really unique area.
0: Can we look back at um, the campaign against uh, uranium mining in in Kakadu and... and you know, look back at some lessons for the movement. Um, you know, over the over the decades of, of this campaign.
1: Absolutely, I think the, that absolutely we can. Like, if you if you don't review and reflect, um, you don't learn, um, and you've got to look at you know what worked, what didn't, and and try and tease out why. Having said that, the game is still in play. There is still a mining operation. It's not mining anymore, but it's still milling ore and we want to see that closed and that that operation move into effective and uh, comprehensive cleanup but there already you can look at some some lessons of that one is tenacity like one is to to none, none of this happens quickly easily or overnight there is a need to be consistent to build relationships to honor those relationships and to and to be a reliable partner both to your environmental uh, allies and and partner organisations, but particularly to traditional owners. Another is that sense of, um, I think, a real uh, key to the success of moving this industry out of Kakadu, and we're close to doing that, and it will be a major success because the Jabaluka deposit has never been mined and will never be mined, and that's because of Aboriginal and wider community resistance. The Kungara deposit has never been mined and will never be mined and is now permanently protected inside Kakadu formally. And that is because of the traditional owner's tenacity, some who supported him and his tenacity and generosity to forego billions or at least multi-millions in personal money for the wider good of protecting that country and ensuring its long-term integrity. We have shown that you not only can make a stand you can make a massive difference and I think the one of the key lessons of the continuing Kakadu story and I don't want to claim it before it's there but one of the key lessons is that together we are very strong, we are much stronger than we are individually and together when it's braided that Aboriginal and that environmental consciousness, awareness and action can be an extremely potent
0: force. Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. 2016 marks 20 years of Earth Matters as Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. Earth Matters covered the fight against the Jabaluka uranium mine, a fight that was eventually successful and provided many lessons for the environment movement, wishing to work in solidarity with First Nations peoples. Here's an Earth Matters archival excerpt featuring Jackie Katona speaking at the Jabaluka Action Camp on Mirar Country in Kakadu. So stopping Jabaluka mine isn't just about killing off a uranium mine, it's about the
1: survival of this community. There's going to be no future for our children and no future for their children if Jabaluka mine
0: goes ahead. And that's from a 1997 Jabaluka special produced by Juliet Fox. That's all we've got time for on Earth Matters this week. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward Earth Matters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. You can contact us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or via Facebook. I'm Tisha Naherne. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. You've just been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. 2016 marks 40 years that 3CR has been bringing you independent community voices. And we're asking you, our listeners, to keep us going for another 40 years by donating to our Radical Radiothon this June 6th to the 19th. This year, we need to make $220,000. So any amount you can afford makes a big difference. Call us on 03. 94198377 7 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for supporting Community Radio.